Good morning again. And again, online, uh, our online campus, thanks for joining us this morning. Today we're kicking off a new series called uh, Freedom from Sin, Holiness in the Life of a Believer. And like I just mentioned a little earlier, last week was Easter, and that's such a significant th- uh, event, such a significant celebration of how we celebrate Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how it impacts us. But what happens after Easter? Sometimes it feels like it's the holiday that we look forward to. Sometimes we know that it has all these great things in store for us. But after Easter gets done, it just feels like life kind of moves on. Or maybe it feels like life moves back and we revert to, to life before Easter. Maybe even life before this idea that something big happened on the cross where our sins were taken away from us. And we revert to old habits that make us feel less holy or closer to Jesus, less closer to Jesus. And maybe we just simply wait for another year to celebrate Easter. Now, we may not realize the full implications in believing what happened during Easter, uh, but it begins a process in the believer's life to experience freedom from sin and holiness in our life. And so Easter, the very first Easter, the trajectory that Jesus sets out for us is that we would experience holiness, that we would experience freedom from sin. That's what God's got set up for us. But again, sometimes it feels like, what happens next? What do we do? This is something we don't want to miss out on. It's got huge implications to our spiritual life, to our spiritual growth, to our spiritual development. Now, this kind of reminds me of a very pivotal moment in my life. And so I didn't date anyone until I met my wife, or to take that back, I didn't date anyone until I mustered the courage to let my wife know that I liked her. And so I knew her from eighth grade. And my wife's paying, and so if you came through the doors and, and you met a little lady, uh, you know, kind lady who was, was checking you off, that's paying. And so, um, so I knew her from eighth grade, but I didn't have the courage to let her know I liked her until my sophomore year in college. And so when I finally mustered the courage to tell Payne that I liked her, and I wanted to be in a relationship with her in hopes that this could turn to marriage, the first thing she's responded was this. That's weird. Man, what worst thing could you hear? So I was sitting there, I've been mushing my courage up since eighth grade up to now, and I'm like, the first thing you say is that's weird. Oh, man. Now, eventually this led to her telling me that she was interested too, and that was one of the best days of my life. But I was so focused on mustering to find that courage to let her know that I had no idea what to do the day after. So I told Peng on a Friday, I took her out to one of my college social events called, um, called uh, uh, well, I forgot what it was called, but it was a spring banquet. And so I took her out on a social event at my college. After we got back home, I dropped her off and I told her I liked her. We had a conversation about that. I was so focused on that that the next day, Guess what I, 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 I didn't plan for it, so guess what I did? Absolutely nothing. I didn't call her. I didn't text her. We didn't go out for lunch or dinner. I didn't say anything to her. Now, guys, don't do what I did. The day after that, so again, I told her on Friday, Saturday, I did absolutely none day. I saw her Sunday because we went to church together. She gracefully, gracefully told me, hey, it's okay to call me. 
It's okay to text me. I wonder if what I experienced was similar to Easter. We're so worked up for the holiday. We know it's something special. We know it's something important. Do we know the implications of what it means once Easter happens? Denied all the implications of what it meant to tell Payne that I liked her, that I know that I need to start a relationship with her in pursuing a relationship, in pursuing marriage. You see, the implications of Easter and what it means to us and what it means to have Jesus die on the cross for us and back, come back to life has huge implications for us as believers. I mean, think about it. What if Saturday happened where I did absolutely nothing and that continued to happen day after day after day after day? I may have never gotten married. I may have never been the person that I am today because she's done so much to, to, to be a formative part of my growth and development. Now, it might be an awesome way to begin a K-drama, but really, on a serious note, the implications of Easter is huge. We're talking about huge where it affects our everyday lives and, more importantly, our eternity. So let's see what these implications are. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning on this, in this new series to dive and explore what the implications are knowing that Jesus died for our sins on Easter. Now, there's a lot of rich passages in the Bible that talks about being free from sin and how we experience holiness, but one of the best passages and the passages that we're going to be in today is going to be in Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible with you, if you have your Bible on your app, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm also going to have it on screen here. And so let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 together. So this is what it says. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. The commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passion, desires, and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. It is only God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, this is a bit of a lengthy passage, but we're going to dive into it and break it down so we get a better understanding of what it means. So before we start, let me give you a little bit of, some, let me give you a little bit of the background information to understand what the, the purpose of this, this letter was written for, why Ephesians was written. 
And so Apostle Paul, he's the author. He writes to this church in a city called Ephesus, and a big part of this letter is written to encourage the believers in that city to think of themselves in a whole new way in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You see, the book of Ephesians was written after Jesus had died, uh, a number of years after Jesus died, and so Paul's writing them, telling them again, you have to think of how you live in a completely different way. Because what Christ did on the cross and what Christ did when he came back to life, that means something. The believers in Ephesus struggled with issues like race and ethnicity, idolatry, sexual immorality, and believing in other things like magic and false philosophies that drew them away from Jesus. But Paul offered them practical ways to live their life, knowing that their life had been transformed by what Jesus had done on the cross and what Jesus did by coming back to life. So again, let's break down this passage to understand what Paul is trying to get at. So in verse 1, Paul describes to the believers that they were once dead because of their disobedience and sins. Now, they were physically alive and well. They were breathing, they were moving around, They weren't physically dead, but the deadness that Paul was talking about was the sense that they were spiritually dead. And when you're spiritually dead, that basically means you do not devote your life to God, you do not recognize God, you do not obey God. Paul continues to describe their state of being spiritually dead in verses 2 and 3, saying that the spiritually dead obey the devil and refuse to obey in God. And the result of this meant that humans and God could not exist with each other, and humans were subject to God's angry, to God's anger. Some Bible translations talk about this as God's wrath. And what that means is that God is holy, and God cannot be in the presence of evil. God's holiness is his standard. And so when evil sin is around God, that sin or evil misses the mark of what God's standard is. And so evil cannot be in the presence of God. That's why God's anger or God's wrath is on humans. However, while God is holy and God can't stand evil and he can't be in the midst of sin, he establishes with humans a way to be with them by establishing rituals and practices where priests would symbolically take the evil and sin among the people and transfer it to an animal to be sacrificed. So that symbolic transfer of their sin onto the animal would make them holy so that God could be with them. Now, unfortunately, even though the people practiced these sacrifices, they were so caught up in their sinful and evil lives that they overlooked God's holiness, and love. In God providing a way for them to be with each other, they overlooked it. Humans overlooked it because they wanted to live their lives their own way. And ultimately, the eternal consequence of this is that this would result in humans being subject to God's anger, to God's wrath, meaning that human experience, humans would experience the eternal consequences of being separated from God forever. This is the concept, this is the idea of of heaven and hell. That with heaven, we're with God forever, and that in hell, we're without God forever. 
Now, that could be a tough reality for us to swallow. And in and one way for us to relate to, relate to this is this idea. Think of someone you care about deeply. Think of someone you care about deeply. Think of someone who you care about deeply who is struggling with something. Whether it might be, you know, they're depending on a relationship to make them feel like they're worthwhile, or maybe they're dependent on substances to make them feel like they're alive. I'm sure we all have somebody in lives that we can think of that we care deeply about, but they're struggling. And think of... Think of all that you've done to help them, but they choose not to accept it, and they ignore it, and they do their own way without your help. Similarly, that's kind of the situation that God and humans are in. Humans insist that they're going to do it in their own way, and they drive the relationship apart. Now, this could leave us feeling hopeless, but thankfully it doesn't end there. Verse 4 starts out the word but. But is one of my favorite words in the Bible. Whenever there's a but, there's a phrase, there's a sentence, there's a clause that's going to come up that is going to contrast what has already been said with something else. It's going to contrast it. There's going to be a difference. But follows this hopeless reality. So get ready for this contrast. Let's reread verses 4 through 6. But God is so rich in mercy and loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. What a contrast. At the end of the first section that we read, the first section ends on a hopeless note, that we experience God's anger, we experience God's wrath. But this section here provides us with hope. We were spiritually dead, but God is so rich in mercy and loves us so much that even though we were spiritually dead, he gives us spiritual life. And he gives us spiritual life when he raised Jesus from the dead. That is the implication about Easter. That when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were given spiritual life. We're going to camp on this just a bit more because it's really important for us to understand this. And if it's one thing that I want us to take away, it's right here because it's how we experience freedom from sin and experience holiness in our lives. So let's sit here for just a little bit longer, okay? Now, because of God's love and mercy, he gives us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. And again, that makes us spiritually alive. So what does it mean to be spiritually alive? What does that look like? What does that feel like? To be spiritually alive means we are no longer dead and instead, we are seated with Christ in heaven. So we get this contrast again of being, of experiencing God's anger, experiencing God's wrath, being separated from God. And the contrast is that we are seated with Christ in heaven. We are with Christ. We are with God. We are united. We are together. We don't experience that separation anymore. The consequence of being spiritually dead means we are stuck in sin and evil. 
and experience God's wrath, God's anger, by being separated from him. Whereas being spiritually alive means we are freed from sin. We're freed from evil. We're freed from obedience to the devil. And we're united with God. Whatever happens to Jesus when we believe, that happens to us too. Now, if you've been around the church, being spiritually alive can also be referred to as being born again. And you'll hear this in John chapter 3 when, when Nicodemus talks to Jesus and then we get the great verse in John 3.16 that summarizes what it means to be born again. If you take a step further into the theological world, this concept is called regeneration. And to be spiritually alive means we are being regenerated. At a one point we were dead, but in Christ dying for us, we experience regeneration. We are alive. Spiritually, being spiritually alive means our natural tendencies of indulging in sin and evil is being reversed. Instead of pursuing evil, instead of pursuing sin, we pursue a life of holiness just like Jesus. And that's God's standard. And that's what allows us to be with him. And then verse 8 tells us this, that all of this being united with Christ, being spiritually alive, being born again, being regenerated, only happens, only happens. This only happens when we believe that God saves us. That's the only way. It only happens when we believe that God saves us. When we believe in God, Another word that we can refer to is having faith in God. It's the sense of having confidence, having full confidence in God, relying on God, having a strong conviction to, to God. It's almost this idea of being adhesively stuck to Jesus, like we're duct taped to Jesus. That's how much we're relying on it. That's how much, we're, how much confidence we have in God. That's how much we, our conviction is in God, that we're literally stuck with Jesus. So when we believe in Jesus, we are spiritually alive. We are reborn. We are regenerated. And we are free from sin and experience holiness. The implications for Easter are huge. And so what happens after Easter doesn't just stop at Easter. It bleeds into every day of our lives. It bleeds into today. It bleeds into us right now. You see, Easter just doesn't stop on last Sunday. It doesn't stop in that one year where we celebrate it. It doesn't stop with the Easter eggs. It doesn't stop with Easter service. It doesn't stop when we have a nice meal with family and friends. It doesn't stop when Monday rolls around. It doesn't stop the week after where we're at today. The implications for Easter is this. Sin stops when belief begins. Sin stops when belief begins. Sin stops when we believe that God is holy and we are not. Sin stops when we believe that God is merciful and loving. Sin stops when we believe that God gave us Jesus who died for our sins so we can be freed from sin and evil. Sin stops when we believe that we can't do anything to save us, but only God can save us. 
You see, in simply believing that God save us, saves us, and in simply doing that and nothing else, this is often what we refer to as grace. Grace is the completely undeserved loving commitment of God to us. In simply believing God that he dies for us, that makes us spiritually alive. That makes us holy. And we receive God's gift of grace where, again, that is the complete, undeserved, loving commitment of God to us. And again, this happens when we believe. Now, a thought that may come to mind is, well, Kong, I'm not experiencing a perfect life. There's sin still in me and around me. There's still evil that's happening. The truth is, church, all that's not going to disappear right away. We're still experiencing the consequences of sin. We might still struggle with it. We might still be victims of sin. We might even be the perpetrator of sin. We might be doing sin onto others. But here's the catch. For once in our lives, we have the freedom to stop the pattern of only sinning, choosing sin and evil. And we have the freedom to stop that pattern that separates us from God. And when we believe, we get to experience a new pattern of holiness that unites us to God. There will be one day where we won't experience the evils, whether if they're the evils that we cause or are caused upon us. I truly believe that there will be one day where all evil is going to disappear. And it says that in the book of Revelations. Right now, we're still experiencing the consequences up to when Jesus comes back. So know that sin stops when belief begins. And all this happens because of this. Verse 10 concludes us with this. This is what verse 10 says. And verse 10 has become such a beautiful image and beautiful uh, verse in my life. So this is what it says. For we are God's masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. I am God's masterpiece. Online church, you are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us a long ago. Paul tells us that we are God's masterpiece. He plans, God has plans for us to do good things. Now sin taints that. Sin tarnishes that. It hides us as masterpieces that God has created. But all this stops when we, we are reminded of that that we are God's masterpiece, created to good. This all stops when we believe. So you are God's masterpiece. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and I in person? What does this mean for you and I online church? We simply need to believe in Jesus. We need to consider God to be trustworthy. We need to rely on God. If 
we're uncertain. We need to take a risk and trust in God instead of ourselves. What is holding you back from believing in Jesus? Is it a sense that you're not good enough? Is it a sense of, I need to do more? Is it a sense of, God, you just don't understand what's going on in my life, and so let me figure this out, and once I do, I'll follow you. Let me bring, let me bring us back to verse 10, church. God says we are his masterpiece. Not that we're becoming his masterpiece, not that we will be his masterpiece, not that we were his masterpiece, but we are his masterpiece. God has had plans for you and I to do good things in our families, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our state, in our country, in our world. And all it takes is for us to believe in Jesus. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, if we continue to go through Ephesians, it's going to give you a quick rundown of what some of those good things are. And here's a few of them. You see, believing in Jesus allows us to be completely humble and gentle, patient and united united in building each other up by speaking God's truth and love to one another. We are to speak truthfully to each other and be generous with those in need. We are to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. We are to live wisely and not get drunk on wine or alcohol, but to be filled with the Spirit. We are to sing and make music to God from our hearts, from our mouths, and give thanks to God always. And we are to do these things in our everyday relationships with our spouse, with our children, to those who have authority over us, to those we have authority over, or those we have authority to. You see, don't let Easter be a holiday that just ends on a Sunday. But let it be a celebration with full implications for us that at every moment of our lives, we're living out a life that God has already planned for us. A life where we are his masterpiece. Let us be reminded that Easter gives us freedom from sin so we can experience holiness in our lives. And that holiness is meant for us to do good because we are God's masterpiece. Let me pray for us, church. God, in the passage that we just read, we were reminded that we were in sin and we were in evil and that we would experience your anger and your wrath and be separated from you. But because of your love and your mercy for us, we are raised to life with Jesus. We are born again. We are regenerated. We are spiritually alive. And all this happens when we believe. God, would you be with all of us? If there's any part of us that tells us we're not good enough, 
there's any part of us that tells us we need to try harder, may your spirit move and ever so gently just whisper to us and remind us that we just need to believe. We need to rely. We need to have confidence in your grace for us. Because when we believe, that's when sin stops. And that's where we experience freedom and holiness. And in all of this, most importantly, we are united with you. And so let that truth run deep into our hearts and our soul and the very being of who we are. So that may we experience what it means to be God, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And we give you glory in all that you do in our lives. And so we pray and lift this all up in your name, Lord. Amen.